Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord Jesus Christ, you who promised that when two or three are gathered in your name, you would be here among us. We ask you now to send down your Holy Spirit upon us and be here present, granting what we ask so long as it is according to your will and for the good of our salvation. For you are blessed both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. Andy, why don't you go ahead and introduce Dr. Smith for those that are uh, new to the Institute. Dr. Stephen Smith is Associate Professor of Biblical Exegesis at Mundelein Seminary. He earned his PhD in New Testament and Early Christianity from Loyola University and has written two books, The Word of the Lord, Seven Essential Principles for Catholic Scripture Study, and The House of the Lord, A Biblical Theology of the Temple in the Old and New Testament. An array of CDs on other biblical topics is also available on his website, thegodwhospeaks.com. He and his wife, Elizabeth, were married in 2000 and have two daughters, Isabel Marie and Olivia Marie. Dr. Stephen Smith, it's great to have you back. The show is yours. Great to be with you. Happy Easter. So we're here for the next three uh, Tuesday evenings talking about one of my favorite documents of Vatican II, called Lumen Gentium. And I'd like, uh, maybe if Andy can help us, to dive right into the text. Uh, Andy, this should be page seven. So this is Lumen Gentium chapter one, paragraph eight. And here's what it says. I just want to read a couple of these lines here. This is the sole church of Christ, which in the creed we profess to be one holy Catholic and apostolic which our Savior, after his resurrection, entrusted to Peter's pastoral care, commissioning him and the other apostles to extend and rule it, and in which he raised up for all ages as the pillar and mainstay of the truth. The pillar and mainstay, or another translation may have pillar and bulwark. So I want to... Um, as a lot of you know, um, and some of you who maybe are new to me, maybe not, or just heard, I'm a biblical scholar. So I want to, you know, I want to start by taking us right to scripture for a moment. So if you have your Bible, it should not be bad to have over this series, because while we're going to be primarily in this text of Vatican II, um, I'm going to point out from time to time some key underlying principles that come from the scriptures. And so um, this one that's referenced in a text from Vatican II Lumen Gentium is 1 Timothy, and this is chapter 3, verse 15. I'm going to read it for us. I just want to make a comment to kind of set the stage. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. St. Paul says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know what one ought to conduct how one ought to conduct himself in uh, the household of God, in Greek, the oikotheou, the household of God, which is, and here's the key phrase that Lumen Gentium uses, right? Uh, the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. Now, it's a very interesting little phrase in the Greek, and I'll put it up for you so you all can see it. Stylos ko hydroma the pillar and bulwark. Um, these are really terms that St. Paul borrows from more of like the Roman uh, military world. They're terms not just of like columns, maybe that's what you've, you've thought of when you heard pillar and bulwark, but it's something much more militaristic. We think of like ramparts, towers, stone siege walls. And that gives you this impression then that what, what Paul's really getting at 
is that the church is this is this monumental foundation in our lives that we can't do without much like a fortress surrounding our spiritual lives in which we find ourselves it gives us the power and the grace through the sacraments and the word of god and the presence of the holy spirit to go out into the world and to live our lives and to proclaim the gospel and it's not only saint paul who who says such very powerful things about the church i want to read just a very short quote from saint augustine and saint augustine uh, uh, let me actually uh, read the quote here. It's actually from a great little book called um, On Being Catholic by Thomas Howard, the great literary convert. And he says, for St. Augustine, uh, er, the early Christians always looked to the church for authority. And here's the line from Augustine. For my part, I should not believe the gospel except moved by the authority of the Catholic church. Again, Augustine. For my part, I should not believe the gospel except as moved by the authority of the church. And so we see from this great apostolic figure of St. Paul and from the great doctor of grace, St. Augustine, words that really focus our attention tonight on the authority and the identity and the mission of the church. And that's what we're going to look at together. Now, um, this coming October, believe it or not, marks the 57th anniversary of the opening of the Second Vatican Council. And I don't know about you, but with everything that's going on in the world, to me, it feels like these teachings, whether it's Dei Verbum on sacred scripture, or whether it's this document on the church itself or the other documents are more important for us to read than ever. Now, there are 16 documents uh, in Vatican II and many pages. This document alone um, if you've taken a look at the, um, I guess the PDF handout is something like 61 to 62, uh, eight and a half by 11 pages. So this is extensive, but it's just one of the documents. There's 16 altogether. However, there are four central documents. And I want to encourage you to take some, some notes if you can tonight. Um, I want to ask you to do that because we're going to go over a lot of information. And it's important to at least get some of the main takeaways down. And this might be one of the first ones. Okay, so let's take a look at these, if you see them up on your screen. Sacrosanctum Concilium. These are, of course, the Latin names, Gaudium et Spes, Dei Verbum, and Lumen Gentium. Just a word on these four. So these four of the 16 are particularly critical because they have the highest magisterial weight. They're what are known as constitutions, right? So they have the highest um, magisterial weight. They're very, very significant. Now, this first one that I mentioned, Sacrosanctum Concilium, was also one of the first of the four major constitutions and was promulgated on December 4th, 1963, and really lays out a roadmap for the church in terms of the liturgical reform um, that we are all, we've all been living in over all the years since Vatican II. So that's a very obviously critical document, right? The next one is one very near and dear to my heart, and that's Dei Verbum, the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation, or kind of in shorthand, the Church's Constitution on Sacred Scripture and Sacred Tradition, as um, uh, the two sources of divine revelation flowing from the same, from one wellspring, from one fountain, these two sources of sacred scripture and sacred tradition. Um, and that was November 8th, 1965, so a couple of years later. Uh, the very next month, um, in December of 1965, December 7th specifically, um, the Pearl Harbor Day, right, for us, the church would tackle a very another major objective in the Second Vatican Council, and that's the church's relationship with the culture, with the world, and that's Gaudium et Spes. And then the one that we're talking about tonight is Lumen Gentium, which is uh, really means uh, the light to the nations, Christ is the light to the nations, what that means in Latin. And so Lumen Gentium comes right in the middle of these, in this period, comes in 1964. So all the documents that I just laid out, the four constitutions are promulgated in 63, 64, and 65. And so Lumen Gentium kind of wedged right in the middle there, right, in, right sort of in the center. And in many ways, that's very fitting because this document, as I want to try to argue over the next three weeks, is really critical for understanding 
many of the other documents in Vatican II. Uh, for one thing, um, it's absolutely fundamental to understand the church's decree on the churches of the Eastern Rite, uh, which is called Orientalum Ecclesiarum, as well as the church's document on ecumenism, uh, which is called Unitatis Redingratio. Um, and they were actually pu published on the same day as Lumen Gentium, the document on ecumenism and the document on the Eastern churches. And that's no accident because one thing we're going to see in this beautiful document is that the church is going to make very, very clear its relation to us, that is her members of the Catholic faith, to other, Christ other churches and other, other Christians, so Orthodox as well as Protestants and other Christians, um, to other uh, faiths, so for example, Judaism and Islam, among others, um, and even to agnostic people. And so the church really has this this broad concept of salvation being proclaimed to all the world from this, you might say, window of, of the church, okay? Uh, it's also very, very significant, Lumen Gentium, in terms of its, uh, the church's relationship with uh, non-Christian religions. So for example, uh, Buddhism and Hinduism and other world religions in a document that uh, is called Nostra Aetate. Okay, so that's enough Latin for the moment, right? I know we're not all Latin scholars and we'll, we'll cool it on the Latin, but those are some of the, the, the key documents of Vatican II. So Lumen Gentium literally is right in the epicenter of those four key constitutional movements that in so many ways um, allow us to read the other documents with the right lens, as well as to understand our role in the church today, personally, in our families and in our, in our culture. Okay, so um, now before we get into this, I just want to kind of set the stage with some, some a little bit of context about Vatican II. But what I find is when some people read it there for the first time, they might be a little bit surprised, maybe a few even disappointed in the sense that this document, Lumen Gentium, does not necessarily give off the vibe of, of having some new ecclesial, ecclesiastical vision. There's certainly not a lot that's new here, you might say dogmatically, but that we shouldn't ever fall into the trap of when we read a church document, like the ones from Vatican II, is searching for some innovation, right? That's not really the way that the church operates. So there's not necessarily something innovative. Now, there, there are, I would argue, documents of Vatican II that, that really break new ground, like for example, Sacrosanctum Concilium and the liturgy, but this document uh, really has a consciousness that's that's really rooted in scripture and in patristic, not that the other documents aren't, but it is to say that there's not a lot that's new here. Now, before you turn turn me off here for tonight and say, well, I'll go check out some Netflix then because it's not really anything new, that does not mean that it's not important. Not at all. In fact, there are some things that are really groundbreaking in Vatican II. Just, I can name, uh, name two of them in Lumen Gentium. One of them is the titles that are used for the church. And so what do you mean by titles? Like, well, what the, how the church refers to herself. Now that may not seem all that earth shattering to you, but some of these are rather new, like the people of God and there are some others which we'll discuss. Now think about our Lord Jesus Christ, right? And ask yourself this question. As someone who's trying to grow in Christ, is it important from time to time to study these titles of Jesus Christ, like son of God, like son of man, right? Like king of Israel, among other terms. Absolutely, of course it is. In fact, in master's degree programs, there's courses on Christology where you study in depth the developments of Christ's life and that would include his titles. The same is true in a different sense for the church. So it's very important how the church is going to describe what the church is and what her roles. And we'll talk about some of those somewhat new terms. That's one example of something that's somewhat groundbreaking. Another example of something that's groundbreaking in Lumen Gentium is what I would call the, the reconstitution of the New Testament diaconate, right? You read about the apostles in the early church in the book of Acts, which we're doing right now during the Easter season of liturgy, right? But there's also this development of the uh, of the diaconate that's described in Acts chapter six and then onward through the book, right? And it's, it's not as though the church just kind of pulls this out of left field, it goes back to the scripture. But there's no question about it that in terms of the modern world, this is really a, 
a very interesting development that we're going to talk about later in terms of what it means. And even if you're not a deacon or know, know a deacon personally, I want to guarantee you that there are some insights in what the church is saying about the diaconate that affect all of us in terms of how we look at the church, the gospel, service, and, and many other things. So I, I think then a healthier way to, to come at Lumen Gentium, rather than looking for what's new or something like that, is something like this. I would put it this way. It's, it's our holy Catholic church is responding to and engaging the modern world. There are urgent needs and all sorts of complexities facing the church in the 20th century, in the modern world. And almost none is more important to start with than the church communicating who she is. What is her identity? What is her mission? What is her nature? Right? How can you understand what a person's going to tell you if you don't first understand something about who they are? And that's what this document does. And it's something that in many ways is both timely and I would say timeless. In other words, it was very important and relevant in 1964 when it first came out. But it's just as important today, isn't it, for us to look at this document and say, Lord, what do you want us to understand about what the church is so I can properly relate to it as a member of the body of Christ? Now, let's talk a little bit about the passage or the approval of Lumen Gentium. It was passed nearly unanimously. Let me give you the figures here. The vote, the final vote was 2,151. I'll put it up on the screen here. 2,151, you ready? To five. There were only five dissenters from the final draft, only five. You say, oh gosh, well, why were there five for at all? You have to understand something about councils. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about Vatican II, Vatican I, we even go back to, uh, to some of the early councils of the church. There's always, and there should be, rigorous debate. That's how things, that's how the spirit often moves in bringing about the fruit that's eventually going to come out. But what is pretty striking is that this was one of the most nearly unanimous documents that was passed. And I'll give you a, a contrast in just a second here. For example, Gaudium et Spes, which is the document that deals with the church in the world, still passed very, very handily. But let me give you the final math on that one. And that one was 2,307. Uh, so slightly more voting, but just still to 75. So five versus 75. Now that's still, I would argue, a very, very, very comfortable lead. It's not even closer than that, right? But it still shows you that in the development of these documents, and though even though there are some things that are potentially potentially um, controversial or matters of debate in Lumen Gentium, at the end of the day, it was nearly unanimous in terms of how it passed in its final draft. And that really, I think, is a very striking thing to say about this doc. There was much more debate, for example, about Dei Verbum. And it all, it all kind of played out as the Holy Spirit would want it to. But uh, it says something about that there was a kind of almost like-mindedness, is what I'm getting at here, among the bishops across the board when this document came down to its final form. And I often think about it. What if this document went another way? Well, the Holy Spirit would have, of course, presented that. But can you imagine if somehow, you know, those the minority and progressive uh, bishops and cardinals uh, that were voting there had somehow developed a different document that didn't cons that tried to reshape the identity of the church apart from its biblical roots or patristic roots? Um, well, obviously, that's not the case. But the point I'm stressing is not only was it not the case. But so much was it the case that it seemed that the Spirit spoke very loudly with this particular document, that there was this like-mindedness, almost near universality about what's in the document itself. The document itself is anything but try. There's all sorts of very critical information for all of us in here. It's not just a document for priests or for bishops. This is a document that we need to read and to heed. And let, me, let, me, let me sing its praises here for a second. Uh, Dave Irvin is not only sterling in its orthodoxy, uh, but it's also really a beautiful document. Almost, almost, and it's not that we're looking for poetry in, in church documents, but there's there's parts that are just so richly beautiful that we'll, we'll ponder them in a way that's almost like some lexio. They're, they're really quite contemplative, beautiful images of the church. Um, it's an articulation of the church's identity, her mission, and her, her, her evangelization out to the world. As I said, it's like this image of the church with outstretched arms 
to her members, to other Christians, to other faiths, even to agnostic people. But it does so in a way that never diminishes or dilutes the apostolic foundations on which she stands. And that's why we began with that quote right from St. Paul, because that's absolutely in and all over this document, that the church is the pillar and bulwark. You might be saying, well, how does this work, right? How is it that the church can proclaim herself to the modern world in a way that, borrowing the words from St. Paul, is she's the pillar and bulwark, right? These militaristic terms. It's like, boom, there it is, the truth on one hand, and on the other hand, be talking about its relationship with non-Christians. Like, how does that work? Well, you're gonna see as it unfolds, and you're gonna see that while it may seem like a paradox, a better word for it is because the church is a mystery. And that's actually, it's a little getting ahead of myself, but that's the title of the first chapter. And it's a very critical uh, one at that that we'll get to. Now, as I said, I want to spend as much time over these three weeks looking at the text itself. So if you don't have the download of the document yet, try to do so whether you print it out or have it with you. Some people I know will have it on a separate tablet or whatever you want to do. But uh, I want to keep my contextual remarks tonight to only the essential ones to make sure that at least next week is fully dedicated. So let's say we'll go four and four chapters, for example, next week. We might even crack the cover on it tonight. But I want to bring us as close to that precipice as possible, because there's a lot to go through here. Now, as I said, Lumen Gentium means literally from the Latin, light to the nations. And if you look at the opening words, I want to ask Andy to put it up just for a moment here, in chapter one, paragraph one, uh, you get a sense of how Christological this document is from the very opening syllables. And I'll read it for us here. Christ is the light of humanity. And it is accordingly the heartfelt desire of this sacred council being gathered together in the Holy Spirit that by proclaiming his gospel to every creature, it may bring all men that light of Christ, which signs out visibly from the church. I want to ask you to highlight, if you have a paper copy, or write down as best as you can here in shorthand, that phrase, because I think it's really, really critical for everything I'm going to say about Lumagentium. Again, that it may bring to all men that light of Christ, which signs out visibly from the church, okay? Since the, since the church in Christ is the nature of sacrament, a sign and instrument, that is of communion with God and of unity among all men, she here proposes for the benefit of the faithful and of the whole world to set forth as clearly as possible, and in the tradition laid down by earlier councils, right? So that would mean Vatican I, Trent, going all the way back, fourth letter on council, all the way back to the, the very first councils, right? So in continuity, in other words, um, her own nature, right? That is who she is and her universal mission, or if you will, what she does, or her um, modus operandi in the world, who she is and what she does. The condition of the modern world lends greater urgency to this duty of the church. And don't we know it, right? For while men of the present day are drawn ever more closely together by social, technical, and cultural bonds, and look at this, and this is so true, right? It still remains for them to achieve full unity in Christ. And we know that this was one of Christ's prayers, right? This great high priestly prayer in John 17, as I'm sure many of you know, is what? Lord, may they be one, even as you and I are one. And I want to just give you a warning here, because we may be coming at this from different experiences, cultural, ecclesial, ourselves, or maybe even people here who are non-Catholic Christians, Christians that may be Orthodox or evangelicals, and welcome you here, right? So just try to learn more about what the church teaches about herself. But I want to say this at the start. Don't think for a moment that this is a squishy document. I don't know if that's a theological term, but I'm gonna use it anyways, because it has a lot to say about ecumenism. You may have heard in the past that, oh, you know, like, well, Lumen Gentium or Vatican II, you know, uh, the church kind of like watered down some things in order to kind of like get along with everybody and be warm and fuzzy. That's not at all the case. The church boldly and firmly proclaims as the pillar and bulwark of, of the truth, as Paul says, it, throughout this document that salvation 
subsists in the Catholic Church. Now, we'll talk more about what that very important term means later. But I want to say at the outset that we can have outreach to other Christians and to people beyond Christendom itself. We can and we often, the church is saying, this is our mission, because the goal is to bring that light of Christ to the entire world. So engaging in ecumenism should not and is not about, from the Catholic perspective, somehow you know, lowering our guard on our dogmas or our convictions, right? That Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, that the Eucharist is the bread of life, right? And the Holy Trinity and all these things that we believe doesn't mean that at all. Nevertheless, the church is really um, lighting a fire and, and asking us to jump into that fire with her to go out to the nations and to proclaim that Christ is the light of the world to all that we encounter. And in that way, I think it's really such a beautiful and very, very vital document. Now, there are eight chapters, just to talk for a moment about the structure of this, of this document. There are eight chapters in this document, and I'm not going to write them up all on the, um, on, the, on the board here, so to speak, but I'm going to say them, and they're pretty clear, but you may want to write them down, okay? Here are the titles of the eight chapters, and listen carefully to these, because they do reveal where we're going, right? They're kind of like a roadmap. Chapter one, the mystery of the church, the mystery of the church, mysterion in the Greek, very important term, which we're going to unpack. Chapter two, on the people of God. Now, what the church is getting with this title of the chapter is, no pun intended, one of those titles that I talked about, one of those ecclesial titles for what do we call the church? How do we describe the church? And there's going to be other ones, as we'll see, but this is a very, very critical one, the people of God. And to give you a little a bit of a hint at where this is going to go, it's going to go back to ancient Judaism. It's going to go back to the Old Testament, that this notion of the people of God is a very biblical term that has its roots in the story of Abraham and his descendants, of the Abrahamic covenant and then the Mosaic covenant. I'm talking about ancient biblical Israel. And then, of course, the people of the New Testament and then on into the church. So there's a differentiation between the old and the new, of course, right? But the people of God as that is to say, the church is prefigured right, and imaged in the people of Israel. So that's where the church begins. It's going to talk about what that means for us. The third chapter is called on the hierarchical structure of the church. Now, for some of us, that may sound like doing taxes or something that's going to get very technical. <laughs> but, but stay with me here because we'll see when we get into it that it actually has some very, very important things to say. For example, where Vatican I spent a lot of its time talking about the papacy and infallibility, because that was very timely, right, at the end of the 19th century, right? Um, this document does talk about that. Of course, it, it upholds that and affirms that loudly, but it doesn't put its major focus upon the Bishop of Rome, but on what you might call the collegiality of all the bishops. So we're talking about the role of the bishops, both individually to the church and as a body. Now, I will say there is a little bit of uh, maybe controversy is too long, too strong of a word, but something like that in terms of this notion of, ecclesi uh, of collegiality. And today, uh, there are even some, we might talk about this in the Q&A, there are some concerns from hither and yon about, you know, is there too much collegiality? Does that, does that um, lessen the authority of the Pope? And, but I would argue that Lumen Gentium strikes exactly the right chord if we properly understand what it's getting at. Okay, So a lot about the bishops, less so about the priesthood. But there are other documents in Vatican II that deal with the priesthood. Okay, So it doesn't really need to. It does talk about the priesthood, but it gives this real spotlight over to the bishops. But before we leave this chapter, the last thing is this development of the diaconate. There's only two paragraphs, but it is really the, the opening, you might say, for what we understand. 57 years now of the diaconate and its reintroduction from its ancient uh, New Testament times from the biblical roots. And as I said, there's a lot in the diaconate that even if you're not a deacon or wife of a deacon or friend of a deacon, they're very, very important. To, let's understand what the church is saying by saying we need deacons and here's why. And I'll tell you what that is a bit later. And it, you're, I think you're going to find it very fascinating. It may be a bit surprising. Um, and then the latter chapters, chapter four is on the laity. This is where we get that's kind of very famous phraseology of, you know, the church calling for the full and active participation of the laity. And one of the things it's going to say in this chapter, chapter four, has to do with the notion of how each one of us is called to proclaim the gospel. And 
it will go so far as to say that there are some ways, if you really think about it, this makes sense, that you and I, as I'm speaking to most of us as lay people here, right? We have an ability to proclaim the gospel, right? To offer our own homilies, if you will, in terms of our lives, our witness, our actions, our deeds, right? Our words in places that a priest and deacon can't ever go. They can't walk into, into your little area of cubicles where you work and, and, and sell real estate or on your floor if you're a nurse or in your classroom if you are a high school teacher or whatever it is, right? You have a greater access to penetrate the world. And so the, the Vatican II is telling us in some ways to really um, recapture that, that, that mission of all of the laity to go out and proclaim the gospel. So that's really a chapter we'll deal with probably in the next or the third week. Chapter five, the universal call to holiness in the church. In many ways, this is what Lumagentium is really all about. You wanna look for a postage stamp, there's many ways you could summarize it, but I would argue this is a pretty important one, this notion that we're all called to holiness, whether we're the Bishop of Rome, whether we're cardinal, bishop, priest, religious, deacon, lay person, does not matter. We're all called to holiness. Uh, chapter six is given over to religious and to the religious life. And in many ways, I think we're seeing both a resurgence of calls and vocations to the religious life in various uh, pockets, particularly uh, youthful and invigorated new religious orders and seeing them all over the place. But we're also seeing, unfortunately, some of the waning of interest in the religious life. There's, there's some interesting things happening there. Chapter seven is the eschatological nature of the church. I'm gonna spell that word before, but just so you get the spelling. Eschatological, eschatology refers to the last things, right? And so here, the church is, is looking to the future, right? To um, how does the church proclaim her witness between now and the coming of Christ? What is, the, what is the mission and mandate of the church prior to the coming of Christ to prepare for uh, the great second coming? So it's looking into the church in an eschatological lens. And lastly, and we'll have to devote a lot of time to read this chapter in some detail, the Blessed Virgin Mary and the church. This is spiritually the creme de la creme on this document. And in many ways, not only is it a beautiful kind of like magnum opus uh, you know, from Vatican II to the Blessed Virgin Mary, but it sets the standard for papal encyclicals that follow from Lumen Gentium. In other words, it kind of laid down a marker and said, okay, you know, to future uh, popes and their encyclicals, what a better way to end a significant document like an encyclical by praising the Lord's own mother and the first disciple of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And you see that really every document that I'm aware of encyclical, from this time, beginning with Humana Vitae, which is a couple of years later, 1968, ends with some sort of either chapter or, or, or prayer to the Blessed Virgin Mary. And this continues even up through Pope Francis. So it's been kind of this, this beautiful tradition that in many ways, I would argue, began, at least in the modern age, with Lumen Gentium. So we'll at least go, we, we can't go word for word, but we'll at least cover all the chapters as we move through, through the series. But let's go back to this this first chapter here for a moment as we kind of stand on the precipice of the document. I said a moment ago that the title of chapter one is uh, the church as mystery, right? The church as a mystery. And I wanna help you understand why that is very, very important. So let me say a few words about that. Uh, it's a biblical word, mysteria is what the transliterated Greek looks like, right? And um, so what does this mean? that the church is a mystery. Well, following St. Paul, it's this notion that the church is the bride of Christ, right? There is something that is intrinsically supernatural and divine about her as the bride of Christ. She is not merely a human institution, right? The church is a great miracle and a great sign. In fact, we saw that word already, sacrament. And you're like, wait a minute, right? I, I went to... I went to CCD, and I don't remember the church being called a sacrament. Vatican II does. Vatican II indeed calls her a sacrament, which means a great sign, right? Now, that's not in any way to, to step on the toes of the, of the seven sacraments that the church receives, right? like the Holy Eucharist and, and baptism and so on. 
But it's to understand this image of the church uh, in, in a way that goes beyond simply merely the institutional understanding that many people unfortunately have. That's one of the big misunderstandings about the church today is that it's merely a human institution, right? So when people see, for example, the abuse crisis or they see things that are happening and it's heartbreaking, right? A lot of people don't have the context that Lumen Gentium is talking about here to understand that that's just part of the story, the human dimension. There's another part of that story and that's what the first chapter is going to talk about. Right after Vatican II, um, the great uh, French theologian, a Jesuit theologian, Henri de Lubac, had a similar term. He called the church, and I'll put this one up on the board here, the Mirabilia Dei, which basically means something like the great works of God. He said the church is a Mirabilia Dei. It's almost like a mirror of God. It reveals to us the greatness of God. And so this is the larger idea of, of chapter one, that the church in her essence is mysteria, is mirabilia dei, is the mystery of God, the great sacrament of God. But there's another side to this. And the other side is, I said not more Latin, here we go with more Latin, or conspicuous, visible. The church is on one hand supernatural and exists visibly, but also invisibly, right? We can't always see the community of saints around us, right? But a church triumphant. It exists in mystery. On the other side of the coin, the church is conspicuous, visible, right? Think of the Vatican, your cathedral and your diocese, your bishop, your priest, your parish, and well, you and I, right? The church is intrinsically human. Um, and there's a great book on Vatican II called The Theological Highlights of Vatican II by uh, Pope Benedict, by Joseph Rathmer, that he wrote um, a few years after um, the council, I want to say 69 or 70, 72 in there, The Theological Highlights of, of Vatican II. And I want to give you just a couple of quotes of what Ratzinger said about the church as mystery. He says, after talking about how the church indeed is mysterion, he goes on to say, but the church's image also assumes a more human aspect. He's saying that in Vatican II, when you talk about mystery, then you also talk about that which is not mystery. In other words, you can talk about the invisible, the supernatural dynamic, then you are able to talk more and contextualize the other dimension that I mentioned, the conspicuous, the visible. And he's honing in on that part, okay? So keep the mystery on one hand and, and think about this human dimension that he's talking about. The church's image assumes a more human aspect in Lumen Gentium. It is no longer necessary to see her as, listen to this, a sacrosanct entity, right? A Fabergé egg, if you like, that needs to be artificially protected. He goes on to say about the church's humanity that in it we see even the sinfulness of the church's members. Because the church is, and this is a great line, always, we'll write this down, always journeying to God and therefore continually in need of renovation. You know, a lot of people are talking about what, what are we going to do to, to restore or renovate the church and our reputation in the world? Well, guess what? This is the church's mission from Pentecost until the second coming, Ratzinger's saying. She's always in need of renovation because there is this intrinsic human quality about her. So Ratzinger wants to lift up, talking about chapter one here, the notion of church as mystery, right? As the supernatural bride of Christ. And in that sense, as spotless, as sinless, as being prepared for perfection, right? Not able to err, guiding us towards the light, wholly reliable. On the other hand, there is this visible dimension there is this dimension in which the church is continually making progress, but not yet at her goal. The last thing I want to do uh, this evening, and I think we've got hopefully five more minutes, if I can squeeze one or two out of Andy, out of <laughs> five more minutes, is, is I want to lay out five great themes, because there's so much in here. That if I just read all of it, you're like, wow, that was great, but there's so much. How do I frame this? So let me give you quickly five great themes, and you may want to jot these down. Over these eight chapters, over these 60 pages, I've pulled out what I think are five overlapping themes. Number one, probably not a surprise, holiness, the universal call to holiness. 
Growing in sanctity is the vocation of all Christians. It always has been, but Vatican II through Lumen Gentium is raising the bar and raising the awareness on that. And in some sense, it's not just one of the five themes, it is the theme, right? Ratzinger says something in his commentary on Lumen Gentium that's really interesting. Yes, he calls the church a sacrament, meaning a holy sign. I like this image, and I want to leave, leave you with this image for later tonight to think about. He says, because the church is a sacrament, the holiness of its members does not exist for they themselves or even for the church themselves. Rather, the holiness of the church and the call to holiness is not just so that we would be holy or that the church would be holy, but think of it as a window. Here's what he says. The church is sort of a window, and the light pouring out of this window, that is of holiness, is what the church offers to the world. As much as the church exists in her identity to build up her members, its mission extends beyond the saved to the sheep without a shepherd, to the unsaved, to the world out there, in other words. In the sense, then, Ratzinger's image of a window is very, very beautiful because it means the church and all of us are called to self-sacrifice. Our holiness is not just so that we get to heaven. Make no mistake, it is that, but it's not only that, right? It's to go beyond. It's that the church might awaken the world to see the light of Christ, Lumen Gentium, coming out of this window and be drawn to it. It's nice, right? Okay, let's quickly, let me name the last four. We'll do this quickly. Second one is the church is the people of God. I've already alluded to that one. But the, the, the emphasis here is on the word, um, the whole people of God. The, the word in Latin, totus, means total, right? That means it's not just something for Father Jefferson or Father Frank or whoever it is or this holy sister that you know. All the church is called to own her identity as the people of God. And one of the things that comes out of this teaching of Vatican II are, is a whole blossoming of of communities, small Christian communities, family movements um, that continues to, 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 to flow through the church. And so there's been a lot of fruit from this particular teaching of, of the church. The third one certainly is the role of bishops, which I stressed, okay? Here is this notion though, of not just what any one bishop does, but, and I used this word before, I'll put it up here again, of the collegial nature of the bishops. Now. In no way is the Vatican is trying to diminish the role of, of the Pope or the Bishop of Rome. What it's trying to do is bring onto the center stage this college of bishops. And the way that Ratzinger talks about it, I think is very, very helpful. What he says is this in that same document, Theological Highlights. He says, Peter is the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, and is indeed the head of the college of bishops. But even though this is true, Peter is still, as he puts it, quote, one of the 12. In other words, he's the head, but he still belongs to, in Ratzinger's phrase, the community or college of the apostles. And he's saying that's what Lumen Gentium is trying to get across, too, in terms of what it articulates about the bishop. Now, it says many other things about the bishop, like his primary role is to proclaim the gospel, right, and to teach. But it's this idea of bringing the College of Cardinals, you might say, and bishops around the Pope as this kind of holy community dedicated to helping the church grow in holiness. So in a way, it's not taking anything away from the papacy, but it's like saying that if, 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 if the Pope is the sun, right, then the stars around him, right, in the sense of the constellations, are to be the bishops shining with lights of humility and holiness so that we can all, we can all grow from their own example and their witness. The fourth one is the permanent diaconate. And as I said, I promised you, there are some things about the diaconate that are really striking here. The first is the very fact that it's being promulgated, right? It's nearly 2,000 years here since it's coming back around. But here's what um, Ratzinger says, why the church decided to make this such a point. Um, he says that in the modern world, there's a danger for Catholics of what he calls mere sacramentalism. Now, we've all heard the word mere Christianity, uh, but he's talking about something different. Mere sacramentalism, and he means it in a sort of a negative sense. That's sort of like it's someone who basically, that, that, that their, that their um, relation with the church is, is sort of hanging by the thin thread of their going through the ritual, the sacrament. And this is what he says. Listen to this, because we can all fall into this, right? 
He says, when one approaches the church in that way as merely a dispenser of the sacraments and that alone, I go and get my Eucharist, I go and get my confession, right? He says, the danger is that there is, quote, quoting here, very little difference than magic. That's the future Pope. That's Joseph Ratzinger saying, when we diminish the church to merely let me get my sacraments, right? There is very little difference than magic. And so he says, one of the roles in bringing in the diaconate was, believe it or not, to bring the word of God back to the forefront along with the sacraments, not in front of it, but alongside of it, right? Word and sacrament. And so among the many other roles of the deacon, including service and being an assistant to the priest in many ways, is this preaching the kerygma, proclaiming the word of God. By the way, this is why it makes me so sad when I hear people say they tune out the deacon or he doesn't know what he's talking about or you know, and I meet many more people, and I'm sure that the body of the Institute is much more supportive and appreciative and praying for the deacons, that they would be great proclaimers. And if they need to become better ones, that we would ask the Holy Spirit to maybe give them those gifts or to maybe even at least if it's grow a little bit. But we need to be lifting up our deacons because the church understood in the modern world that we need more than ever to accompany the sacraments with the preaching of the word of God. So when the sacraments are received, they're being done so not as magic but based on the reflection and contemplation of the word of God. And lastly and quickly, we'll take a few questions. The fifth theme is the laity. Here again is this notion that the church is calling for the full-throated, full participation of the church. This is not putting the laity above or beyond the bishop or priest, but it's raising them to their dignity and stature as the saved people of God whose lives demand a witness uh, to Christ out to the world. Uh, the laity are able, as I said earlier, to witness the love of Christ in ways that the priest cannot. For example, in the sacrament of marriage, in family life, in schools, and in the marketplace, and in endless social settings, as well as person to person. And Lumen Gentium, I think, long before the time of social media and the way that the world would be fractured into these kind of broken technological bubbles, gave us this truth that we need to reclaim today to be the church for one another and to go out to the world and to proclaim Christ as the whole people of God. Now, as El Pacino once said, I'm just getting warmed up because next week we're going to start going through those chapters. My goal is to take us through chapter one through four. Now that we've laid out the basics, we can kind of zoom over the document and really get into a lot of its, a lot of the meat. And then the last week we'll save the last four chapters ending on that high point of um, that beautiful prayer to the Blessed Virgin Mary. God bless you all. Thank you, Dr. Smith. A uh, wonderful introduction and first part to our three-part series here on the, uh, on the church, uh, especially focusing on this beautiful document at Vatican II. Um, we all have this now in our hands. And I encourage you, you know, not to just, we're not, I, I said this at the beginning of our little, you know, pre-program as we were talking that that it's easy to sit back and allow the the distance of our computer, the the computer to set to kind of set this kind of block between us, you know, and dehumanize us. We can't let that happen. When you know you have an opportunity to ask a question when you're when you're signing up, make sure you do so. Make sure you're reading along with us. Make sure you're studying, asking yourself difficult questions. Another question, Doctor Smith, coming in: What does it mean that Christ is the light of humanity? And then is Christ a mystery with the church? I, I'm not sure what the second thing, but... Okay, let's take the first part. So yeah, that's the opening line. All these documents that are promulgated in Latin take from their, the documents themselves, take their cues from the documents for the great theme that's laid out usually at the very beginning. As I said here, it's the opening, it's the opening words, Lumen Gentium, Light of the Nations, right? And you think of it, you go back to... Um, you go back to John's gospel, right? Think of Jesus standing in Jerusalem, in the court of the temple, on the Feast of Tabernacles, when the whole of Israel is gathered around him. And there he proclaims in chapter 8, verse 12, Ego eimi, I am the light of the world. And the phraseology here is, is a little bit different. But it's basically conveying the very same thing that we see in John's gospel, which is this idea that Christ is the light, not only of Catholics or of Christians, but of the whole world. That's why I wanted to stress earlier tonight is because in saying that, you know, the church's mystery and the idea that that Lumen Gentium is really focusing us back on that the church's role, I love Ratzinger's image, 
is that the church would be a window through which this beam is continues to shoot of glorious resurrection light. So that it's not that the church isn't trying to attract people to herself, she is. But ultimately, the church is saying in a very humble way, like maybe like a Mother Teresa, hey, don't look at me, right? Look at the light that's beyond me. And of course, that's beautifully why it ends with Mary, is that's her role as well, too, is to reflect and radiate the light that comes from her son. And that's what we need to, to contemplate as we move through this document. How can we be more a part of that mission of reflecting that light? And there's all sorts of practical ways that I know we're trying to do this. But um, and let me say one other thing. One of the reasons I want us to read these words of Vatican II is there's too much floating around out in cyberspace and from your neighbors that have somehow confused what Vatican II really teaches. So let me tell you, folks, there's nothing at all wrong with Vatican II. There's nothing at all wishy-squishy about Lumen Gentium, right? You know, it's going to talk about ecumenism. There's no lowering of the bar of proclaiming the gospel. To the contrary, right? It's, it's going out to the nations. But one of the reasons we need to come back to the, the truths that are in these documents is we have, live in a culture that is confused by what the church is, or in some ways is trying to confuse, quite frankly, doesn't want us to really understand what the church really teaches. So let's come back to this keystone document and understand what the church really says. The problems that happened after Vatican II, where they existed, are not bound up in the document themselves. There were sometimes other reasons for that, as I'm sure we know. But there's nothing but beauty in these words of Vatican II, and we're going to go through them in as much detail, I promise you, as we can. You know, Dr. Smith, I'm glad you brought this 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 point up about about the uh, value of the documents, and sometimes they are mishandled or accused of being this way or that way. And I encourage our participants. You ever hear that from somebody? Oh, Vatican II, this Vatican II, that, or whatever. Say, I'm sorry. Where was that? Where, where in the document? Show me the doc. Show. I always, I, I know you've memorized this thing. I'm, I always say a text without the context is no text at all. And that regards scripture, but also regarding the church's teachings. Where is that? Show me where this is at. And I want the context of that passage. Okay. It's important to not allow somebody to hijack the teachings of the church and misconstrue them for something they're not saying. Uh, a related question here, Dr. Smith coming yeah. in. Is there any major differences between the council's uh, documents, uh, uh, the council presentation of the nature of the church and previous councils presentations of that, of the nature of the church. In a sense, yes. And in a sense, no, what a great professor of answer, right? I mean, in a certain sense, as, as I said, there's, there's no new dogma that's really being articulated. Even the, the, the notion of reconstituting, if you want to call it that, the decorative, that's not a, that's not a dogmatic change, right? It, it, it has a liturgical dimension. It has an ecclesiastical function, but it's not as though the church is proclaiming some new dogma. Now, where there is, I wouldn't call it innovation, but where there is a, a new articulation of the church, and we'll get into this in chapter two next week, is some of the titles, right? Just let me give you a quick sense of some of these. So for example, in chapter two, um, we get the title, the, the people of God, but we also get ones like, um, it talks about the common priesthood, it talks about the church um, as the uh, as the sheepfold. It talks about, we'll go through some more of these. I don't have them in front of me right now. But in, in some of those ways, the, the church is not really changing from past documents. But you could say that it's like, you know, if you move from one foot to another, you shift the weight. The emphasis is being shifted out into some newer territories that haven't been really dominant in the past. And there are reasons for them. But as, as uh, Father was saying, we need to understand the document according to the document's own self-knowledge rather than what someone's told us about. It's like the Crusades, right? I mean, you guys have done great work here on the Crusades and had wonderful speakers. But I bet a lot of us over the years have heard, oh, well, you know, the Crusades, they were all just, you know, horrible stuff. And it's like, well, you know, the Pope, the Pope never called for the sacking of Constantinople or the raping of Jewish women and children. Okay? We do know that there were atrocities that were done and the church recognizes those as sinfulness. But that's distinct from the mission of those crusades, which in many ways had at its root, right, restoring Catholic lands. But I think it's an analogy here for understanding, like, well, there's what people say about Vatican II. And then it's like, well, what actually is the substance of the text? And that's what we're going to try to do. It's wonderful, Doctor. Thank you so much. Sister uh, Michelle, let's take you off a of mute there. And uh, Sister's got a question. You talked about, um, you said when... Um, the church, she said, some people might think it's a, it's contrast, a, a contrary when they say talking about like the agnostics and stuff. But isn't that like what Paul did when he went? I forget what where where it is in scripture where he he goes in and I see he says I see you have 
you have you're very religious you're you're worshiping a god and then he takes that little kernel of truth that they have and he 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 builds on it to bring them to to Jesus and and the God of Jesus Christ. Beautiful, Sister Jabbar. Beautiful. I mean, I think that imagery, if I'm remembering correctly, is from Acts chapter 17 of Paul at Athens, the so-called Mars Hill Areopagus speech, where he sees this statue to an unknown God, and for Paul, that's an opportunity to proclaim Jesus Christ. And I think that you can see in this document as we get more and more put it under the magnifying glass that it kind of draws its cues from some of St. Paul's own, you know, mode of operating as well, that, that Paul never missed an opportunity that we know of, right, to proclaim the gospel. Now, he was often out in, in hostile situations. So the church obviously is, is, is not going to call us to, to do things like, you know, beating people over the head and to be proselytizing, or I know, I know Father was joking about stapling it to your neighbor's door, or forcing in front of your butt. But, but ought, ought we to be thinking about and praying about where are those opportunities to do just like St. Paul did in our own way, using using all the tools of our of our own lives. Um, use I love to use examples from movies because this is what people do today: movies and books and things like that, and art to kind of to draw analogies to get them think about the meaning of life and the role of God in our lives. There's all different ways we can do this. Look at the way J.R.R. Tolkien did it. He basically created this this you know Middle Earth, this kind of secondary world as it's called, and through it, many people have come to faith in Jesus Christ through that friendship. Actually, in talking with C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis went from basically a, a, an atheist to a deist to a convinced Christian simply by hanging around J.R.R. Tolkien, who was so knowledgeable about the field of literature. Well, that's proclaiming the gospel, right? And I think uh, like St. Paul, or we're talking about Tolkien, there are many, many ways to do it. You don't have to be Tolkien. You don't have to be St. Paul. You just need to be you, but you do need to first understand what the church is saying to you so you can go out and do it. And that's what we're going to talk about when we get into this whole uh, concept of ecumenism and relating to other the churches. But I want to stress again, while talking about its relationship to other Christians, our separated brothers and sisters, the church never ceases to proclaim the one true holy Catholic and apostolic church, the four marks of the church. It's it's not, a, there's, there's no confusion there, right? The church at once is the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, and at the same time, she has her arms out to the world to invite all to see the Christ, the light of the nations. Dr. Smith, again, thank you for being with us. Bring your Bibles back, folks. That's right. That's right. Thank you for being with us, all of you. Uh, guys, I want to leave you with one final um, final image that uh, that Dr. Smith pointed out, a question related to uh, tonight, and that is regarding this idea of Christ, the light of our humanity, and what Sister Michelle was asking earlier about uh, Psalm 1, blessed is the man, this comparison with the tree growing by this, this living water. We have to become habituated to reading scripture and reading the teachings of the church in a meditative way. And that means allowing images that are used and descriptive terms that are used to challenge us, to allow that picture of that tree to be before us without water flowing so you can hear it. You can reach down, almost taste the, the sweet, fresh water flowing through it and see the, the fruit growing on it and then begin to consider what the church is asking us to look at, or what the scriptures are looking at, as to look at what, what it means to be the blessed man. So what does it mean to be the light of humanity? Uh, and uh, and, and I'd, I'd encourage you tonight, before you go to bed, turn your lights off in your room, in your prayer. Just turn them off. And then ask yourself what it means that, that Christ is the light of humanity, the light of our life. And isn't this the, isn't this the point? It's an image of, of what light does. You're lost. You can't see. You can't find your way. But when the light is is lit, then you begin to see again. And, uh, you know, a beautiful, beautiful phrase I've been thinking about this last week, and it's this, that when Joseph of Arimathea came to take down the body of Christ uh, from the cross, to, to take it to, to ask Pilate for his body, he risked everything. He risked everything. Now, the scriptures tell us when he did that. He said he was a man who was of high rank, member of the council, who was looking for the kingdom. He had, a, he had a vision for the kingdom. What a powerful image, a man with a vision for the kingdom. Uh, and this is, we're invited to be a people that has a vision for the kingdom, restored. 
in each and every one of us, a restoration of the true nature of the church. And so blessed to be here with Dr. Smith and all of you studying this beautiful document of Vatican II together as we move forward. Again, thank you for participating. Uh, consider your support for our work. It's much appreciated and ask you for your prayers uh, uh, as we journey together to the kingdom which is to come. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and to ages of ages. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.